0: When we meet Moses in this uh, fascinating story from the 18th chapter of the book of Exodus, Moses has already experienced the powerful effect of life in community. Though born a Jew, as you'll recall, Moses has been raised within the community of an Egyptian family. He has been part of the uh, reigning administration of Egypt at the time, Pharaoh's household, and being part of that particular community endowed Moses with many important skills, leadership skills, for example, that would go on to be very, very important when he was one day leading an entire nation of Israelites. It also got Moses very accustomed to having his own way. As the The son, uh, the adopted son of the head of the uh, world at this particular time, Moses enjoyed a lot of privileges. He got used to being able to say things and have things the way he liked, And, and that particular attribute probably would get him in trouble later on. That experience of community that shaped in him, that particular attribute would have some negative effects for Moses in the years ahead. And because he was a a little bit of a confused child, he was uh, halfway between being an adopted son and a stepson. His mom, his real mom, lived down the road over there, and his, his, his father in his household was not really his blood father. And he was Jewish, but he was also sort of Egyptian, so you can understand why this young man grew up with some sense of internal conflict and why anger, maybe, Why anger became an issue for Moses, as we've talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago. The circle that you and I grow up in has similarly interesting effects on us, I submit. Think about it in your own experience. Uh, The journey that each of us has in some original family of origin endows us with certain wonderful capacities and certain negative ones, with stars and scars, as somebody has once put it. And And these gifts that we get are intertwined very often with the liabilities that happen, and a lot of what you encounter in the way of difficult relationships with, sometimes with members of your own family or in your workplace, maybe even in the church or out in the community that you move around in, a lot of that is because of those particular um, effects that the family of origin community had on the other people in your life as well. maybe. Maybe we're still trying to get attention uh, or the praise that we didn't quite get in that original family circle. Many people, even as adults, are still trying to make up for some deficit they felt they experienced back in that uh, family setting. Maybe uh, we're still out there trying to hide from the emotional intensity of other people. Uh, Maybe we got injured in some way through that experience, and now we're just a little bit, we are a little bit pulled back. in in group settings because of our association with what happens when we spoke out in the past. Maybe we're uh, still uh, blasting people with our emotions because that's what we saw patterned. We don't even know it's not normal or it is normal for us. Uh, Perhaps our spouse is giving us feedback about this and we can't quite understand why uh, they should be so upset when we're just doing the same Emotional thing we saw done by those who raised us, or maybe we are struggling to express our emotions in relationship. Uh, we've got people in our lives who wish we could be more authentic, but we learn to bury those because of that original family we have. Maybe we're out there still trying to please other people. I don't know how many of you are people pleasers because you just you wanted to avoid conflict. And, and, and you, wanted, you found that you got praise when you pleased people. Or maybe you're out there trying to organize people. I'm an oldest child, right? I was always responsible for making sure the troops were, were, were in line and had things taken care of. And I, I still battle in me this instinct when I walk into a room, I feel like I ought to be taking charge. You know? when It's probably appropriate that I not take charge in some of those settings. Uh, there, there are maybe some of us who have lost a hope that we could really have a voice um, because we didn't have a voice uh, in our family. Maybe we were at the, the bottom of the totem pole. We were always being outgunned, outshouted, and so we, we've lost the hope. Or maybe we got the mistaken impression that our voice overly mattered, that we should use it a lot, in fact, we don't even have a clue that um, other people should be getting the microphone more often than they're getting it in our relationships, right? And, and the, these patterns that got established in that original community, that first community, are now uh, prisons to us in a sense. We keep going round and round that circle again and again in ways that are limiting what God is trying to do in our lives. Um, I shared with you uh, that you know, one of the big issues for me is, is this, this feeling, this need to be competent. I got so rewarded by uh, being competent as a kid. And so I, I think I shared the, set, the story of, of burning the, the fish, you know, and just being defensive about that because I couldn't admit I had made a mistake, you know. Still, 56 years old, you know, I'm still going around that circle of just wanting. Always to be competent. I don't know how many of you know the name Pete Scazzaro, but Scazzaro was an enormously popular uh, minister in the city of New York. His church was booming. People were downloading his sermons. People were flocking into the church uh, in record numbers. But uh, Scazzaro's wife uh, said to him, I'm not going to your church anymore. He said, Why? Because the man I'm married to and living with is not like that guy. It's up there. And that prompted for Scazzaro a whole new journey in life and when he, in which he went back to, those, to the original circle in which he was raised and actually even further back to the, to the circles of his own uh, parents, their, their childhood experiences, to try and understand what made him the way he was and why it wasn't working uh, in, in his present life. Here's the point I'm trying to make here. One of the most important tasks of, of our journey in this world is, is to grow in self-awareness, uh, is to grow in an understanding of what makes us tick, why we say and do what we do, and where that came from in our lives. Uh, it, it's enormously important for all of us at various points to, in effect, go back to Egypt. Okay? Okay. To, to, to get past our blind spots by going back to the shaping influences of our lives and understanding them. We need to name some hard realities in some instances. We need to perhaps forgive some very complex people that uh, in their interactions with us helped to shape us this particular way. Uh, we need to own our scars, and I wanna say we really need to claim with gratitude all of the goodness that we got uh, in, in that family of origin. Uh, Because until we really understand the the rich mix of what went on there, it's going to be hard for us to really move forward into the new possibilities, into the fresh ways of being that God has for us in this life. Uh, To be the agents that he wants us to be of blessing and good in this world, we need to have understanding. This is what I mean about going back to Egypt. I love what Jesus says about this. He gets up in his very first public address, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Uh, He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. He sent me to set the captives free. He wants to take us out of those loops, those circles we go round and round and help us into a new life. Jesus wants to deliver us from that Egypt, in, in, in a sense. So here's my first question for you today. What have you taken with you from that first community in your life, that most powerful shaping community? Uh, what, what are the scars? What are the stars? Uh, talk about that maybe today on your way home or at some point uh, reflect on what that was. What are the gifts that you need to keep giving thanks for? Uh, what, are the, um, what are the difficulties about your personality, the issues that you need to keep going to God with and others to in order to... To find an even healthier way of living, dare to believe this: you are in the hands of a God who can help you in this sphere of life. You are in the hands of the God of Exodus, and He wants us to know that freedom from the captivity some of us have to those old patterns. As many of you know from reading the story of Moses in the Book of Exodus, when um, when he first leaves Egypt, uh, he is still a prisoner. Uh, you may recall that Moses has, uh, in a fit of passion, killed a man. He's buried his body, as, apparently badly, because <laughs> he's discovered. He has to flee for his, his life, he believes. Uh, and so he leaves Egypt, and he goes off into the wilderness, uh, an area of, uh, of Saudi Arabia we call Midian, or was known in those days as, as Midian. Um, Moses is, at this point, a, a lost man. He's a guy with no circles inside of him except these chains of his past experience. He's not part of the Egyptian community in a true sense any longer. He's not part of the Jewish community really anymore. He's just a fugitive in, an, in no man's land. And, and as Moses is out there in no man's land, he's wandering along in, in this wilderness of uh, Midian. He happens to come to an oasis, to a, a well, and he's... He's obviously refreshing himself there when all of a sudden along comes seven women, seven daughters, and they are uh, herding some flocks and they are bringing the flocks there to to water them. And he sees this going on when all of a sudden this very surly group of of shepherds arrive and they start messing with the girls, I guess, or maybe they're trying to steal some of the livestock. The text doesn't make it all that clear, but there's trouble. And Moses, as you may recall from the earlier story, Moses is a military man. He is used to being in command. He stands up in the situation, and I guess the others back down, and the shepherds leave, and Moses ends up um, reconsolidating the flock for the, for the women. And they think he's a hero. And I guess in some ways, he, he is in this moment. And they go home, and they tell Dad about this guy. Well, Dad is a big deal. Dad is, is Jethro, the priest of Midian, in other words, he's a God-fearing man. He is also a powerful and resourceful man. He is also a kind and a compassionate man. And, and so Jethro decides to take uh, Moses in. He brings him into the Midianite clan, and he gives him a really good job in the family business, and he entrusts his daughter Zipporah to Moses as his wife, and he trains Moses in all kinds of desert leadership skills now, and all of the things you need to be able to do to handle yourself in the wilderness. And it's there in this redemptive circle, there actually in this circle formed by a guy who is, in a sense, the father that Moses wished he'd had. It's, it's there that some of the scars from Moses' first family, uh, uh, first community, begin to heal. Now, that difficult community begins to be overwritten in its influence by this life giving community he's now a part of. And in the stability and integrity and love of that particular circle, Moses actually starts to be able to hear the voice of God. Not just the voice of his own inner compulsivities and anxieties and, and, and disfigured sort of patterns of dealing with the stresses of life, the voice of God becomes real to Moses. And in one striking encounter, Moses is out uh, herding the flock and he comes across and you know the story. There's this bush that's burning and it's not being consumed. It's this wild apparition of sorts, but God speaks to him out of it. And he says, Moses, I'm nowhere near done with you. I have a mighty mission to send you on. I want you to go to Egypt and bring out my people from their bondage. And Moses, who is healthier now, still filled, filled with certain trepidations, uh, responds and says, yes, Lord, I'll go. And, and amazingly, that community, uh, the community of Midian now, his second family, uh, they are, they are uh, embracing of this calling. And Jethro blesses Moses to go. He says, I'll take care of your family. You go off on this mission. And so Moses and Aaron uh, head off uh, down to, to Egypt. Um, and it's a wonderful, amazing uh, story. Um, I don't know if you've ever been part of a life-giving circle like that, one that helped you to heal some of the, the uh, issues that got created in the first circle. I hope you have found yourself in that kind of a life-giving circle. I know for me, it has been um, salvation in, in, in some sense for me. Uh, very early on in my uh, Christian journey, my early 20s, I, I learned how much blessing comes from this kind of a circle. Uh, I've been part of uh, innumerable little prayer groups and Bible study groups and Christian service groups and work groups. Uh, I, have, I have found them safe, stable, loving places to talk honestly about what I keep tripping over in my the patterns that I keep repeating and get help from them. In getting out of those things, people have spoken amazing truth to me and love in in those particular circles. I found it even in the circle of my marriage and my family, my kids, my wife. They tell me what I need to hear. Right? It's not always easy, but they often are telling me things that are pointing out patterns that I've just accepted as normal. That God wants to take me out of. He wants to uh, unimprison me from, deliver me from. Um, I have made very little progress alone. You're thinking I made very very little progress, period. (laughs) You may be right. It's all relative, right? So (laughs) it feels like I'm making progress. Uh, But I've done very little of it alone. Uh, I I have badly needed the company of others uh, to gain the perspective that I need or the encouragement I need to keep dealing with it. Uh, Almost all of the progress I've seen in the areas of life that matter most have come from the power of what God did in a life-giving circle. I'm reminded of the words of Jesus, who said it would be this way. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. I go back to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and following, when we get a picture of of the first church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They had all things in common. You know, they, they were committed to the fellowship. Um, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The, you know, this powerful, life-giving community that is God's vision for our lives. I hope you know that for yourself. I, I hope you're not trying to do it on your own. I hope you're not um, thinking that um, if you just try hard enough, think hard enough, you're going to deliver yourself uh, from bondage. Um, I think it's important to keep thinking about what I'm saying here because we live in a society where uh, all kinds of forms of pseudo-community get presented to us. Um, they're not bad in themselves. They're just not uh, the total life-giving circle that God has in mind for us. I mean, social media is, is, is a form of community today. Uh, we've got community around... Um, Uh, certain locations coffee shops Uh, we have community around the tv shows we watch the sports team uh, teams we follow go cubs go cubs Um, we have uh, we got we got 50 folks uh, who are part of a running community right now on the streets of chicago right these things are good these are forms of community Um, but but So many people in the midst even of those forms still are mainly doing life alone. Uh, And there's really hard evidence for this, actually. This is not just preacher talk to you. Uh, In his um, book, The Road to Character, New York Times columnist David Brooks uh, supports that assertion with uh, uh, immense amounts of research. He says that, you know, for example, people today have fewer close relationships. When people are surveyed about their really intimate relationships... And they're proud of, well, I got X, I got Y, I got Z. These people are keep. They have fewer of them in comparison to people just a few decades ago. And they don't even realize that there's been a depletion in in the number of really deep friendships in our society. Um, People today express a higher level of loneliness, and they express a lower level of trust in other people than just a few decades ago. You know, this is sort of like the frog in the kettle phenomenon. There have been so slow, we've been moving faster, our lives are more jam-packed, and, and we've been losing community, at least the deepest kind of community, um, uh, little by little in our world today. We are increasingly bowling alone, as Robert Putnam puts it in his landmark book. Google's algorithms were turned on uh, studying the uh, phrases and language that people used in relationship to this issue of community. And uh, they're called n-grams, and, and these, these little phrases that are, that are indicators of how we think about ourselves in life. And um, uh, this is what uh, Brooks found out about uh, Google studies. Over the past few decades, there has been a sharp rise in the use of individualist words. Think of what some individualistic words might be, right? Of I and me and my and myself and personalized and I come first and I can do it myself. Google studies all these documents all across the world and they find the incidence of those kinds of phrases on the rise, while the incidence of, of, of terms like community and share and united and common good have dramatically decreased as those other terms uh, are, are on the rise. Um, and this is what we have to live against. Or let me put it differently. It's for the sake of community that we want to live for, right? We want to be reaching back and, and, and being part of these life-giving kinds of circles. Because this increasing isolation, this descent into sort of a circle of, of one, doesn't just happen to selfish people. It doesn't just happen to narcissistic people. Um, It doesn't happen to dumb people. Uh, Really capable people can actually, even people who have known life-giving, the circle of life-giving community and its power, can slip into solitude unintentionally. And it it happened uh, to Moses. Uh, It happened to Moses. He'd been part of this amazing circle in Midian. But by the time we meet him in Exodus chapter 18, he's doing it alone again. He's doing life alone again. Uh, he, he is uh, now leading the Israelites on uh, the original million-man march. I know we're celebrating a, crud- a critical uh, anniversary this weekend, a wonderful anniversary. But this, this was million people going through the wilderness... Moses is at the head of this incredible parade, and he's got huge responsibilities. He is heading up the entire justice system of Israel. All the cases that are coming up, uh, he is resolving. From the earliest in the morning to late at night, he is sitting there trying to handle these uh, cases. He is wearing himself out. He's becoming a bottleneck to the administration of justice in the land. And it's at this particular point that Moses' old small group leader, Jethro, shows up. And with great wisdom and great love says to him, the work is too heavy for you. Stop it. This is not good. You cannot handle it alone. And Jethro goes on to describe a model for doing leadership in community, for everybody sharing in the weight of leadership um, that is transformative uh, for Moses, for the people of Israel, and leads to a whole new and better era uh, in, in the life of both. So here's, here's my second question for you. How many people do you know who are carrying a load that's just too heavy for them? You know, they're just, it's just too weighty for them to do all by themselves. They've got a, a personal history, a, a set of scars, that is burdensome. Or they've got a set of character challenges or relational challenges or financial challenges. They've got an um, addictive stuff happening in their lives. They've got an emotional or psychological uh, trauma that they're still trying to recover from and, uh, and which might get transformed if we could help them get out of Egypt and into Midian, you know, if we could help them find life-giving community, uh, would there be so many shootings? Would there be so many, um, so much violence I- I- in our land? So many addictions, divorces, suicides, secularists, lost people. If there were more of these Midian-like communities into which people could find their way and find help and healing and God's power because Jesus was in the midst of them. I I think there wouldn't be as many. I think that's one thing we could do to change the world would be to propagate these kinds of life-giving, smaller life-giving communities. So let me just give you a couple of final encouragements and then send you on your way. First of all, if you are part of one of those Christian life-giving circles, invite somebody else into it. Open up a chair. Don't keep the blessing to yourself. Uh, Dare to risk that there might be a little change in chemistry for a short time, but let somebody else in the way Jethro let Moses in to the Midianite clan. Secondly, take the role that you play in whatever communities you are a part of even more seriously than you may have. You know, if you're anything like me, sometimes we just go on autopilot, Right, We're half hearing people. We're half paying attention to what's going on around us. We're just sort of on our plan. Let's, let's make a covenant that we're going to take our circles even more seriously. We're going to be really present to the people there. We're going to listen very, very deeply to the things that they are saying. We're going to listen for the heartbeat, the, the emotions beneath the words that they're speaking to us. Think about encouraging people more regularly celebrating gifts, naming capacities, expressing confidence and hope. Uh, for as uh, Eric Campfields frequently uh, reminds us of the wonderful saying, everybody is in the midst of a much greater battle than, than may be evident on the surface. Uh, Bear witness to God's work in your life. Talk about um, how he's helping you face up to some of those circular patterns you go round and round and how he's slowly helping you out of those things as an encouragement to other people to look at what that circle might be for them and to dare to believe that they can get out of it. And if you see somebody who's stuck in a pattern that just ain't working for them, gently, lovingly ask some questions that help people take a look at these things and stand with them. Stand with imperfect people as they make the journey the way that Jethro did for Moses. And finally, if you're not part of one of these life-giving circles, join one. If you're not part of of an intentional growth group or a uh, small ministry team, uh, get into one we will help you find your way into one. You can go out to the commons today. Go to the grow and serve stations in the commons. You will find volunteers on hand that would love to help you. Make one of those connections. And, and I believe that if you have that connection in your life, you will discover that it is one of the most powerful ways that God designs your life, strengthens your life for the good, and, and allows you... To be an agent of his blessed purposes in this world. Would you pray with me? God, we know that Jethro was was right, that the work is too heavy for us. We cannot do it alone. Help us to find and build and open up circles of your life changing love that help us and help others out of Egypt and into Midian and toward the promised land. For in the name of Jesus we pray, and those in the circle said, amen.